This podcast is presented to you by a new series, the Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. When we read the sacred scriptures, um, we... Uh, we don't need to uh, go far uh, within the early church to see how they shifted from a homogenous community, but into a, a heterogeneous fellowship of different races and ethnicities. And, and and sure, it took us to Acts 15 before the church had to come to terms with their racist tendencies towards the non-Jewish people, um, but they overcame it. Um, you wrote, hopefully, as we determine where we can detach unhealthy beliefs from groupthink, we can drop our labels, break down our boxes, and gain spaces. What forms of, of groupthink is creating lines of boundaries within our churches when it comes to nationality, ethnicity, race, and culture? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including the Honorable Charles Qualls, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening, Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. 
Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Ellie Bonilla Jr. Ellie is a National Millennial Director for the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. He is the next-gen pastor at Bethany Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He's also the author of a new book, Mixed. Ellie, thank you for joining the conversation. I'm honored to join this conversation, man. I'm super excited about it. Well, I guess first things first, we, you know, I, I guess my friends in Baton Rouge would be remiss. We are recording this the day after the women won the national championship in basketball. How, how are things in, in my favorite city in the world, Baton Rouge? Let me tell you, like, it doesn't take much to get Louisiana people in a frenzy of celebration. And what, like we, I, I, and what I've experienced, I'm a Texan just moved here, but what I've experienced, experienced here in Louisiana is any excuse to celebrate, uh, people will get out and celebrate. And so with something as legitimate as a national championship, people have rightfully so been losing their minds. The the young ladies, man, of that program are amazing. We've actually uh, come into partnership with the women's basketball team. They want to do some things uh, in the inner city with some of the students that we get to reach. So inside and out, what a great program. And man, no, they, they crushed it. And they beat uh, one of the best women's college players they're saying in history, Caitlin yeah. Clark, I think her name was, she was going yeah. crazy, but LSU came man. Yeah. they won it out. Now I will say I was uh, texting some friends in Baton Rouge today who were very boisterously posting celebration online. And I had to <laughs> note it to them. I know for a fact, they never once went, went to a women's basketball game. So like <laughs> for those of us that have little girls, and grew up, you know, raised them in the Baton Rouge area and took them to those games. Right. We can celebrate. Yes. <laughs> but we'll give Louisiana, our LSU fans, their due, you know, because I'll throw a little shade at them. Um, they're not going to be winning football anytime soon. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. It's been tough. Um, so, I'm telling you, uh, man, any, any excuse to celebrate. So, so uh, you know, we're going to get to the book here in just a second. Um, you know, what, what else would you want folks to know about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I would love people to know about me is, uh, man, I, I have a great family, an amazing wife uh, of almost six years this year, two amazing kids, Nova Lee and Ezekiel. Um, and man, I get to serve uh, the greatest generation uh, in history thus far in Gen Z. And I get to raise a couple of Gen Alphas in my home. And so I'm on to the next generation uh, you know, and believing that all the stats, you know, they say one thing, but, you know, God definitely has a great redemptive plan for what this generation is going to become, regardless of what you've heard. And so that's something I would love people to know. And I'm um, a part of the Latino uh, population. My parents, my my dad's from Mexico, and my mom's from the Dominican Republic. So the National Hispanic Christian Leadership position I hold nationally is really to serve that community. And I've been serving that for about five years. And so the next generation uh, and really people amongst my community for the greater population of the U.S. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm into. And that's uh, a bit of who I am and what I'm doing. That's a great segue to, to transition to your book. Uh, the new book is Mixed. This book examines the complexity of our identity. You wrote as a person with mixed race and ethnicity, I've often found myself navigating um, by what Dr. Daniel Rodriguez, a professor of religion and Hispanic studies at Pepperdine University calls living in the hyphen, where I attempt to choose the best of multiple worlds, worlds that overlap. 
obviously we're going to get to kind of the nature and content of the book here in just a second, but obviously this is a somewhat of a personal theological expression to you. So I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper into your story, um, kind of maybe that's, that's expressed in that statement there. Yeah. So living in the hyphen, as uh, Dr. Rodriguez says, you know, it's, it's really funny. Like, so I, I feel like if you looked at my life, like uh, a Venn diagram, right. I have like several different circles that overlap that are very different than one another, but kind of overlap. And like right in the middle is where I found myself. And every once in a while, I would be invited into conversations that would represent one of the circles that are a part of my life or uh, a circle as in an identity or a box as in like a checkbox of a category, maybe a race ethnicity category. And I didn't realize that I was, and I guess uh, retrospectively now I get in, which is the reason I read, wrote the book, but I didn't realize how homeless I felt in identifying with uh, groups of people. Um, and, you know, and for better or for worse, you know, we, as, as we're growing up and in our adolescence, we try to find the group that we belong to. And really the groups that we belong to um, are very basic groups, right? It's based on like, it's, uh, you know, what, what are the things you like? What are the things you're attracted to? It's also based on what you look like. And um, for my whole life, I really didn't fit in any categories or any boxes or any circles. And I found that in 2020, whenever we were having this conversation around race and, you know, it hit a fever pitch and um, Black Lives Matter was on, um, I kind of had my um, almost like an existential crisis of like, hey, this, yeah, th this is the time the pandemic was happening. Everyone was zeroed in on what was happening uh, with the social justice movements and inequality and all the things of the like. And I found myself like wanting to be proactive in it. And as I ventured out into uh, what it meant to be involved in conversations around race and ethnicity, uh, I found that the oversimplified black and white uh, boxes that were built for that conversation at that time, I think were fine for a conversation starter, but over time they proved inadequate for many people in other communities, especially communities like myself, where my mother is Dominican from Dominican Republic, but racially she's she would be categorized as black, right? Uh, so she's an immigrant, moved to New Jersey. Um, so she's a black woman, but she's an Afro-Latina woman. And then you have my father, who's from the border in uh, Nogales on the Mexico side. He's a Mexican. He, he moved to the United States. And if you know anything about the border crisis we've been having for multiple, multiple presidencies and decade upon decade um, with the kids in cages and, and, and really, I mean, the inhumane environments down there and the mess with immigration and and things like that. Um, I, I found myself like wanting to get into like social justice, but finding that there were um, people that would tell me, hey, you're allowed to, yeah, let's, your black voice, we can lift up your black voice. And as I'm, I'm trying to go my Caribbean, you know, black side, my, the Mexicans are like, hey, yeah, man, but where, where's your voice for the children in cages on the border? Uh, and those that are struggling with immigration. 
And I was pulled two ways and both ways were what I would say righteous wars to wage because of how much injustice were being manifested on various sides. Um, but at the same time, I was being simul uh, silenced simultaneously. And so in 2020, I kind of got into that place where I'm like, man, I, I feel like this is a skin deep conversation trying to solve soul deep implications. And that's where, that's where this book comes from. It's, it's saying, um, man, I didn't quite fit in any box. I, I was mixed, uh, indigenous, African, European, all mixed into one. And the, on top of the fact that my parents are not from this country and I was born here. I was born in California, raised in Texas. All of my schooling was done in like uh, in the South. So like Oklahoma, Tennessee, uh, Louisiana. And so I felt American, but I was never American enough or I wasn't Hispanic enough. And so that's kind of to give you the chaotic picture of what actually birthed uh, the book that uh, I wrote here. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. You know, we, we talk about these things. Um, there's great complexity, especially when it comes to what people mean with, with some of the key terms in your books. I wonder if we'll take a minute <clears throat> to kind of, if you can briefly define some of these key terms that you use within the book, uh, nationality, ethnicity, race, and culture. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when when I break down these terms, I you know, and I'm I'm actually gonna pull them up so that I can have them uh, to quote. I think it it's so funny. We, whenever I uh, talk to people, the question I get, or at least when I meet someone for the first time, and no shade if people have have said this before, but like it's uh, the question of what are you, right? And that's an interesting question because I I kind of know what they mean. Usually, whenever uh, they say, like, what are you? It's like, okay, so are you asking me what am I because of my my color? Is it my accent? Are you asking me what am I in terms of what state I was born in, where my parents were actually born? And so um, I think, yeah, that's the reason that I wrote this part. Um, and also, I just want to be uh, clear in the book, um, I kind of say that I... I don't kind of say I, I reference that this came from um, the Barna uh, definitions on their um, they they had a a magazine um, or or an edition of their magazine that was about beyond diversity and so I'm going to give you guys these uh, definitions. So nationality describes someone's legal status of citizenship or belonging to a particular nation. So it's pretty straightforward. 
Um, you know, so your nationality is based on the nation that you're in, that you claim, and that you have uh, citizenship of. Ethnicity is based on perceived cultural similarities, which are often linked to a shared ancestral background or heritage. This may include someone's nationality, but ethnicity may also be defined by or exist in combination with language, religion, tribe, or place of origin. So that's a little bit of ethnicity. It's kind of digging a layer deeper. Race is a set of socially created categories based on selected perceived differences in physical traits, such as skin tone, facial features, hair texture, et cetera. So it's all the ex external things where ethnicity deals with your language, your religion, your tribe. So, so really, really um, uh, the essence of the person that is shared with the group of people around races is all uh, physical. And then culture consists of beliefs, behaviors, objects and other characteristics common to members of a particular uh, group. And so these are the definitions that I'm I'm working with. And and really the reason that I I, I gave these four definitions is because I I believe that there's power in the language that we use. And um, I think that some terms have been misused and misapplied. And because of that, I think it's added more confusion than clarity. And so I made sure that on the front end of the book, I gave uh, some clear definitions that I found very helpful uh, so that people would understand that, yes, I'm Latino, but racially, because of the way I look, I lean more black in category, but I'm ethnically Latino because I share the same language, um, the, the, the shared backgrounds histories um and, and and that and so those are the reasons that i shared those uh, definitions i hope that those definitions help somebody you wrote you see i didn't choose to be mixed racially and ethnically i didn't get to choose my parents uh that I was born to the state i was raised in there were many things you didn't you don't get to choose either the beauty of knowing why those elements of your life exist both physically and experientially will come from entering into a divine tension that comes with embracing who God created you to be. You know, on one hand, I found myself absolutely agreeing with your uh, your goal to help people find their God-given identity. At the same time, I found myself so cautious on that idea because God has been hijacked by so many people, uh, mm. by groups over millennia to shape into uh, what fits into their identity, especially with the God mm. seen in the Bible. So, so therefore, my, my question is, how, how do we know what a God-given identity is? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. And I think the answer to that, that question is uh, we begin with God, right? God is the source of our identity. The he, We are made in his image, right? The Imago Dei, the, uh, we, we are made in his likeness, right? And so I, I totally agree. And I think that's a big reason that I... I wrote this book as well is because almost nobody fits into my identity, quote unquote, right? Like you were saying that people hijack, um, they, they, they use their identity to try to mold people into an identity. Uh, and then sometimes they'll, they'll put God over it or they'll, they'll make it something righteous. Uh, but what I found was I was like, but no one's like me. So what do I do when I feel alone on this Island 
uh, and I feel homeless in a conversation where I, and I use the term visitor's pass, where I have visitor's passes to go to my Mexican side or my Dominican side or my Latino side, my American side, where I'm like, I'm able to be in the room for a little bit, but I'm not actually able to stay because I'm not completely that thing. You know, I'm experiencing almost like um, 300% of something trying to fit into 100% of somebody, right? Where I'm like, man, I wish I was more American. I mit- I wish I was more Mexican. I wish I was more Dominican. Um, and I think in that, where where I, I found the most help is stripping everything back into what is the essence of, uh, of being? Like, who are we as people? And what are the things that are primary? And what are the things that are secondary? And what are the things that are tertiary, right? Um, and not allowing... not allowing myself to say um, I am a Christian of color, right? We're not saying I'm a millennial Christian, like being very careful that my identity is in Christ first and foremost, right? And I think that that's where um, we get tripped up because if if we start to put adjectives to the identity that Christ has given us or with the word Christian, then what we'll start to do is we'll start to fracture and we'll be like, all right, these are all the Christians of color. These are the white Christians, or, you know, these are the Demo- uh, Christian Democrats, Christian Republicans. And I think that that's maybe what, what you're alluding to is that ideologies for the sake of power are trying to hijack, we call it identity politics, where we get an identity of a group and then we attach it to something else. And, you know, and we put it in its place and we get the identity of another group. We attach it to something we put in that place and it causes us to turn against one another or see someone as the other. And I think um, the best place we can start with identifying what does it mean to be um, to be made in the image of God is first with the humility of what you just said that I, I said in my book that we didn't get to choose the family we were born into, the culture we grew up in, uh, the skin color we have, the accent or the language we speak, uh, because we didn't choose to be born. We were born. And so I think that's where you start. You start with God as the um, the the one that gave us life. Um, and so uh, that that's the place that I would start first. And so I think it's that's a posture of humility. When you know you didn't get yourself here, um, I think that that gives you the right place, starting place of humility to then investigate why you're here. Now that you know you're here, and I and I might get who gave this quote wrong. I believe it was, um, and someone fact checked me, but it may, it may have been Mark Twain. It's like the two most important days of your life is the day you were born and the day you find out why. And I believe that those two things are the the two ends of identity, that you were born with an identity and the why, the essence of who you are then is made manifest from the source of your life, which is which is God at the end of the day. Sounds like a Mark Twain quote, you know. Sounds good to me. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds good. It's, that's not in the book. So just uh, to be clear, that's not in the yeah. book. But that's extra on this podcast. There you go. Someone go look up that quote. It's a good one. 
Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Um, speaking of great quotes, I love this quote from the book. Um, where can we begin to build on a healthier understanding of ourselves? In turn, how can we love, celebrate, and unite people who are not simply different from one another, but beautifully complex in their own ways? Can you take us a little deeper here? Yeah, I I, I think it, it it goes with um, you know, I I feel like a lot of the conversations that we were having and we continue to have about identity are all how do we interact with people of a different identity without doing the homework of our own identity? And I think that we grow into better empathy for the other when we do the work of wrestling with the complexity of who we are. Like the more you dig into yourself, the more that God illuminates who you are, right? The more you read the word and it becomes a mirror to you and and you're able to see, oh my gosh, look at all the things that have been a part of my life, the things I've experienced, the place I grew up, the you know, all the things that kind of make up who you are. The more you realize, oh my gosh, yeah, life is not just hard, it's it's complicated, it's it's very complex. And if you can stay in touch with that aspect of how God created humanity, so complex, but beautifully complex, and you do your own personal homework of knowing yourself through the lens of God and the mirror of his word, I I really do believe that that will give us more sober of a perspective on the other. Because if you think you're complex, imagine another person is just as complex as you are. But when we, we don't do the homework and we kind of just take things for granted or uh, we kind of put ourselves in autopilot, uh, then then I then what we start to do is we get our oversimplistic view of ourselves and we start to view people as oversimplified caricature versions of themselves. So we get prejudice, stereotypes. Um, and, I, and I really do believe that's why, you know, when Jesus tells the disciples, you know, uh, love others as you love yourself. Um if we're not willing to do the homework of really investigating, man, who are we? Like, who did God create you to be? Then we won't do the due diligence or have the muscle uh, necessary to really take time to get to know people because people are so deeply complex. But man, if you've ever had a longstanding friendship with somebody, you realize there's a beauty in knowing someone and being known yourself and so i think that's um that's a big part of the journey of embracing uh someone else that is complex because i think at the end of the day you'll find uh that they're even more beautiful on the inside because of who god created them to be 
know, even well-meaning people, um, in this socially, culturally, and racially, um, more aware world, um, might ask the wrong questions. Um, you wrote, considering how I've encountered other people's wrong assumptions about me leads us to another question. How can we get past our assumptions about people based on their physical appearance? What questions should we ask? So first, uh, for well-meaning people, because uh, we don't have time to talk about the genuine racist and bigots in our world, um, you know, for the well-meaning people, what what are maybe the wrong questions? Yeah, really, one of the things that and I want to be, I want to be honest. Like I, you remember when the teachers used to tell us, "Hey, there's no dumb questions." <laughs> so, I think, I think, um, the wrong questions are the ones we choose. Um, I, I think the wrong questions are the ones that we choose, um, to answer. We. The wrong questions. Sorry, I want to. I want to get this right. I don't want. I don't want to just. I don't want to speak. I think the wrong questions are not necessarily the questions that are spoken out of ignorance or lack of knowledge. I think that the wrong questions stem from a, either a, um, I either a no. I'll say it better this way. At the end of the day, if you're a Christ follower your questions are weighed according to the spirit in which they're asked. I, I'd rather say it that way. Your questions aren't necessarily weighed right or wrong based on the way you formulate them, which obviously there are questions that, yeah. I, but I think at, at the end of the day, I think they're always weighed on um, the, the spirit in which they're asked whether they're asked through the fruits of the spirit, whether they're asked through the, the, the fruit of love, the fruit of uh, joy, the fruit of peace in your own heart. Um, because I could formulate some questions for us, but I think the wrong way to ask questions are questions that have, that are laced with selfishness, uh, questions that are uh, laced with exploitation or to manipulate or to deceive. I think that the agenda behind a question, whether or not the question is laced on, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, sometimes we can lace questions um, to gauge someone's status, whether that's, um, you know, uh, their education level, their background they grew up in, that we're trying to probe to see whether or not we're going to take them seriously. Um, it could be very superficial questions like, you know, how many Instagram followers do you have? And according to the answers is whether, whether or not you're going to, you know, pay attention to them anymore. It's like, oh, you have 10,000. Tell me more. Right. Like as superficial as those ones or the questions like, what are you? Which, um, you know, can be a question that I won't necessarily consider wrong if, you know, you're doing it with like genuine curiosity and you're like, man, I love that accent. Um, but then there are those that say, what are you so that they can, you know, like, mm, so ah, I don't know about this guy. And, and they find out, oh, Mexico, I, I I had this. Let me let me give you a real uh, world scenario on someone asking me that question and then finding out, oh, there was something behind that question. They asked me what I was and I told them my mom's Dominican and my dad's Mexican. 
And the response after I said my dad was Mexican, not that my mom was Dominican, my dad was Mexican, was, well, he didn't, he said, well, I hope he got here legally. Did he go through the, and I'm like, well, I hope he got here legally. You know, I'm like, why did you like, you know, like, uh, it's just, I, and, and to me, I think it could have, it's the same question, but depending on the spirit behind the question makes it right or wrong. So it, you know, I think we can get trapped in the semantics of like, oh, I don't know if I wrote the, the, or if I said the right question. I think the Holy Spirit is good enough in giving a grace for the moment that even if you, um, you know, don't have the words, ask the right questions. I think that the spirit of the way you, you ask questions can come across. And there have been people that have asked me questions that should have offended me according to popular culture. Uh, stereotypical questions that didn't bug me because I felt the genuineness of, you know, trying to understand. So I hope that doesn't sound like a comp out, but there is something about the spirit of the question that oftentimes trumps the phrasing of the questions. So what are the right questions? What are the right questions? So so a question that, um, what are the right questions? So I would say, I would say this, um, the right questions are genuine, curious questions. Um, questions that uh, are, here. here's a better way to put it. Questions that are um, who you are questions instead of what you are questions. Right. So um, how can you get to a place where you can peel back who they are as a person rather than um, just staying kind of at the surface of what you uh, what you see? I, I call that in the book identity versus identifiers. And so if I were to say what what are the right questions, I would I would I would go down the route of if you're going to ask me what I am. Um, and I give you an answer and I start to unpack my heritage, you know, I, I think that it's more about what is the question after the question, right? And so am I having this question to have a conversation or am I, or do I have this question just to get information, right? So what are the right questions? Questions that lead to conversations, not just questions that lead to information. And so what are you can be a good question if the attempt is towards conversation and really getting to know the person. But it can also be the wrong question if what you're just trying to do is saying, hey, you look different. You know, what are you? Huh? Um, and so I, I would start I would start in that direction. What is the question behind the question? Also, I would phrase instead of what are you? You can try to say, hey, man, what's your heritage? That's a great question. That's a great question because it's a multi-dimensional question. It doesn't have, it, it has everything to do with what I think you're asking, which is you see my appearance and you want to know what I am. But heritage is so much robust because it also takes into account not just my background, but my ancestry. Where are my parents from? Where did they grow up? You know, where did I grow up? Um, so what is your heritage? Like if I were to tell somebody, Man, if you want to ask a an, an ethnicity or race question, um, I think starting with what is your heritage, I think that that is one of the 
best questions uh, you can ask when trying to, to build a conversation around uh, a topic like this. Let's, let's turn our attention to uh, the church, uh, an institution based on a divine construct of inclusive community. Um, we go to the church, early church, we, we find um, something radically different than what we see in many of our churches today, um, which is we don't see people oftentimes that look different than us. Um, did you ever imagine in your lifetime that... Um, You'd see, you know, culture charging way ahead of integration and multiculturalism with the church languishing so far behind. Huh. You know, I, you know, I, I, I like, I, I want to be as charitable with this as I possibly can, because there are so many churches that, um, man, they have been forging and pioneering in this space, uh, this multi-ethnic space, long before um, it hit a fever pitch in 2020. And so um, if, you know, I know there are critiques out there like, man, the church has been sitting on its hands. What what has it been doing? There definitely have been people that have been leading the charge in um, ethnic and racial diversity uh, within churches. Um, I do think, however, we are still living in an era where we are living in the repercussions of everything that was sowed in the early years um, of uh, of this nation, right? You know, we talk about the four hundred years of slavery, and then uh, Jim Crow and, and segregation, and then we had the civil rights movement, and that you know that's really the, the African Americans. But then you throw in you know, all of the, the history of the Latino Hispanic social justice movement that began in 1511 on the island of Española and that, you know, and the Mexicans and Puerto Ricans that fought for their rights. And the reason that we check uh, the Hispanic boxes and we're not considered a race and all those different things, um, you know, there, there are repercussions to that. And I think um, in large part, because the church was so strong, especially when we look at uh, 1900s, let's go in like 1960 and beyond, um, because we were so populous and we were so powerful in the sense of uh, politics and, and, and really moving the needle in culture, I think that it made for an insulated church instead of a missional church. And I think the problem with uh, an insulated, powerful church in the sense of culturally powerful, politically powerful, is that it has a way of um, having us fall into our comfort zones and our comfort cocoons. And more often than not, uh, in the way that society has broken itself up into because of historical implications and culture, uh, we just kind of stayed in our silos. And you know, we really, we were for our own and we were for what was around us and we really didn't venture out much. And so I think that that's a lot of the reasons that we're seeing uh, homogenous churches in multicultural areas. Now, what I will say is if you come from like, for example, I was preaching in um, Boise, Idaho. And if I'm not mistaken, Boise, Idaho is 92% Anglo, right? And so 
Boise, Idaho is a hard place to have a church that's like 20% this, 20% that, 20%, right? Like it's not Queens, New York is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so I think it would be bad to pressure everybody into having multi-ethnic uh, churches with a high, high amount of diversity. What I think it is better said is, does your church reflect and let's just put a, a, a number to it, a 10 mile radius, like you drew a 10 mile radius around your church, does the constituency of your church reflect the diversity of the neighborhoods around? And if it doesn't, I think the next question is, where is your church spending its time? Is it only spending its time within its own four walls? Or is your church involved amongst the community around you? Because I I, you know, I, I know this to be true, and I've seen this evident in so many churches. The more you spend um, concerted, intentional, consistent effort within the communities around you, the more your church will start to look like your community. And so I think that's uh, two answers. There's, there's repercussions from all of the broken systems that there's still remnants from where you know, it made for homogenous expressions of the church where the black church had to unite because they weren't welcomed in and so on and so forth. But then likewise, it's perpetuated perhaps from a lack of intentionality around mission and being the church of our community. Um, and I think that we could solve a lot of problems by leaning into mission and not into like, okay, we're going to conquer the neighborhood, but into saying, we are going to spend ample time amongst those of our community with the least of these, with those um, that uh, are not, maybe not walking into the four walls of our church, but we're going to be the church to them where they are. And, uh, and perhaps that's an answer to uh, why there's a lack of diversity and to maybe how we can start to head in that direction. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. When we read the sacred scriptures, um, we uh, we don't need to uh, go far uh, within the early church to see how they shifted from a homogenous community, but into a, a heterogeneous fellowship of different races and ethnicities. And, and 
And sure, it took us to Acts 15 before the church had to come to terms with their racist tendencies towards the non-Jewish people, um, but they overcame it. Um, You wrote, hopefully, as we determine where we can detach unhealthy beliefs from groupthink, we can drop our labels, break down our boxes, and gain spaces. What forms of of groupthink is creating lines of boundaries within our churches when it comes to nationality, ethnicity, race, and culture? Yeah, man, when we, when we, uh, I think it's buying into um, really what culture is doing at the moment with um, all the, uh, for lack of a, a better term, I wish there was a better term than the one I'm about to use, but, you know, uh, identity politics where um, we're wanting to move in mass for the sake of um, uh, getting things done, right? That's, that's the power, the power in numbers. Uh, power in recruiting. And um, that's one of the tensions that I write about in the book. It's like, hey, people were rocking with me when I embraced this side of my uh, race, you know, the black side. But the moment I brought up, hey, and also, you know, the Mexicans then, and and I was silenced by the other group saying, no, I'm diluting the conversation. Like it's not helping, you know, this is not helping us move something forward. And so I think, um, People will draw lines if it doesn't serve um, what they deem is to the benefit of their group, their group, right? And I think what the gospel does a great job of is um, reminding us that, you know, when we're in Christ and when we're one body, that there's no Jew nor Gentile, no man, no woman. And obviously that's not saying that we're not a race or we're not a gender but what it what it is saying is that there there are identities that we lay at the feet of Jesus as secondary to our identity in Christ and that we share an identity um, across and that uh, if we draw lines in order to gain certain powers or to gain certain prominence that is not in line with kingdom values or kingdom culture uh, then we run the risk of being more divisive and we run the risk of uh, leaning into things that uh, Christ did not call us into. As a matter of fact, I, I like to say this, um, they talk about like mislabeling certain things. Like people um, have asked me in well-intentioned, like, how can I have a multicultural church? And my response to them is, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the right way to put it. I, I, I think you, should long to have a multi-ethnic church um, because I I believe that really there should be one um, major culture that every ethnicity bows to and that's the culture of the kingdom. Like every culture lays something down uh, in order to be a part of the kingdom. And I, I really do believe that like these boxes and all these different uh, things that we put in that create lines in between us. And there's a bridge that goes over all those and that's Christ. And he's the only one that's able to really unite us. And really the spirit of God is the one that gives us the wherewithal to live with one another, even amongst our, our distinctions and, and differences. And so, um, yeah, that, that would be my answer to that. Last question. Um, you know, 
combating our, our tribalism and groupthink also mean, means we need to change our habits around social media. Um, you know, we know essentially from election cycles that um, the social media algorithm works for our tribalism. It, it allows us to not only populate things on our feeds uh, with people who agree with us, but actually allows us and gives us the opportunity to uh, get rid of the things that don't, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that nice yes. right click, you know, of uh, let me, I, let me mute this conversation or let me unfriend this person or unfollow. You wrote, uh, right. there are, are fascinating, scary reports of how so, social media uses the way we retrieve store and value knowledge, proving once again, that will be shaped by what we focus on. Maybe we're anxious about our lives because we're comparing ourselves to someone we've seen online or we're depressed because we're allowing ourselves to be bombarded by negative news. Yeah, I, I don't want this question to be perceived as, you know, the pandemic's over, people need to get out from their isolation and go and be among people. But could it be that the solution to to some of this is actually to be the body of Christ, to be with people, to build community with people who, yes, look like us, but also people who don't look like us and learn their stories. And how have you experienced that in, in your own ministry? Yeah, man, fantastic, fantastic question. Yeah, I I truly think like face-to-face, there, there is something about being face-to-face with people and putting yourself... Um, around people you're unfamiliar with, man. Like, and, and I go back to mission on this, like um, I think social media and we found out very quickly is such a toxic way of trying to maintain relationship. There's no way we couldn't, we were, I mean, I don't know about you. I was losing my mind in, in quarantine. Like I needed people, um, you know, and I, and I mean, I, my, my family and my kids, but there is something about the community uh around and and i think the the challenge to us is you know i think there is a part of our flesh that does not want us to be in community and so it tries to drive us to either isolation or to be you know sit in our comfort zone with the first you know the couple of people that we know and i think christ um great commission is the exact opposite antithesis to this that it's to go out and make disciples and you know make disciples that's such an it's such an intimate thing to be directed to do because you you don't make dis- disciples out of uh happenstance you don't accidentally make disciples right you got to be with people and you got to be with people and if you're making a disciple they can't be people that are already disciples and so i think it's asking yourself man how how often am I around people that don't one know Christ, but two, how often am I around people? I don't know. And, and I think, and if I could take it a a step further at three, how often am I around people that are different than myself? I mean, what I love about Jesus is he was constantly around people that were different than him. That, that, that was the scandal of the Sanhedrin, right? Like they were like, how could you be sitting with all of these different types of people and you're hanging out and then you're hanging out with Samaritans, not tax collectors and prostitutes. And I mean, and lepers, hey, when kind of like, it's, it's, it's across the board, but there is something about getting, getting out, getting around people that are not like you uh, with the heart of Christ to love on them, to love, love, love on them and believe that, um, that our call and our mission is to be among 
the what culture would call the other, but uh, what I believe we will be eventually be able to call our brother, our sister. And so um, I think social media, perhaps social media is the place where you can publish uh, what, you know, the Lord is speaking to you, but it is a very, very poor place to um, have a diet of relationship or a diet of human interaction, because at the end of the day, uh, who people are behind their keyboards uh, is very different than who they will be in person. And sometimes the worst things of people and the fakest things of people will be made manifest through a screen. And I think we lose faith in humanity because we're not among humanity. Let's get out. Let's let's be around somebody uh, or or some people that are in need of the light of Jesus. And let's take up our call to uh, be that light to the world. And I think uh, we'll be better for it. So I don't say delete all of your apps. What I am saying is um, spend more time with people and you'll be a lot less anxious around the fake people you see on social media. Our guest is Ellie Bonilla Jr. The book is Mixed. You can stay connected with him by visiting elliebonilla.jr.com. Ellie, it's been a, a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to not be afraid of complicated conversations in this mixed up world as it is beautiful and powerful to be mixed. Thank you for having me. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.